The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 21. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we are all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, we're in the midst of a short series that's becoming a long series on the understanding how to obey the command of 2 Peter 3.18 to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We've been looking at, um, over the last uh, six weeks, previous six weeks, we've been looking at the fact that the only way we're going to grow in the grace of Christ is by using the means of grace that God has appointed for that growth. The means, the pathway, the instruments, the spiritual exercises that God has appointed for us to use so that we would increase in strength and encouragement in the grace of Christ Jesus. We've already looked at the Word of God as a means of grace. We've looked at baptism as a means of grace. And now we are looking at the Lord's table as a means of grace. Really the most important verse in understanding how the table of the Lord is a means of grace is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Uh, which, as Eric just read, I'll read it for you because I don't have a slide for it. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Now we're going to look at this more next week when we finally get to this verse. But what this is pointing out is that something more is taking place in our celebration at the Lord's table than mere ceremony. There's an actual koinonia. There's a fellowship. There's a participation. There's a sharing in the body and the blood of Christ that is taking place when believers by faith come to worship him at his table. And that's what we're trying to dig into together as we look at the Lord's table as a means of grace. Now as we begin, would you please pray with me for the Lord's blessing on the sermon. Lord, we do come before you needy and dependent and recognizing that without your blessing we will accomplish nothing here this morning. Lord, if you don't attend to us, if you don't tend us with your word, if you don't fill us with your spirit and give us understanding 
in your truth, nothing good will be accomplished here this morning. So, Father, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of your beloved Son, we ask that you would accomplish many things for the glory of your name this morning through the preaching of your word. Lord, we've, we've, we've looked at how you describe your word as a means of grace in the scriptures. Now, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning and that we would know by experience that increase in strength and encouragement in the grace of Christ that comes through your word. Lord, settle our hearts, clear our minds. May we not be distracted or divided as we sit here this morning. Help us focus fully upon things in heaven. Help us set our minds upon Christ. Father, that's our desire. That is what we will endeavor to see happen. And we pray that you would bless our labors to that end. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at the Lord's table as a means of grace. And we saw from 1 Corinthians 11 how seriously God takes worship at the table of the Lord. We saw that if we are not discerning properly what we're doing when we come to this table, if we are not seeking to understand and discern the body rightly, God will allow us to be sick. He will allow us to be impotent, spiritually weak, and He will even allow us to die if we go about partaking of the Lord in an unworthy manner. God takes worship at the table very seriously. And it's because of that that historically the church has also taken worship at the table very seriously. We saw last week that believers have viewed the table as so central to properly worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ that they were not only ready to suffer, but they were also willing to face death in order to worship together with believers at the table of the Lord. I think of, for example, the catacombs in Rome. I have a picture of this. Here's a, a painting that is in one of the catacombs in the city of Rome. It was painted in the mid-200s during one of the more severe times of persecution against the church. Here we have the believers worshiping the Lord, and guess what that thing is right in the middle? That's a communion table. Yeah. It's representing them celebrating the Lord's table in the catacombs, hidden away in darkness, seeking to escape from the persecution of Roman tyranny and enduring the dangers associated with worshiping the Lord under the empire of Rome by worshiping the Lord in the catacombs. See, they held it as so central to their worship of Christ that they would not let it go, is my point. They were willing to face death in order to worship Christ at the table. Think of John Calvin. I brought him up last week, fencing the table. Here's a representation of that. Some ungodly, wicked men who were known adulterers and drunkards came to the table expecting Calvin to hand over the elements of the ordinance to them. And in response to them, Calvin said, I have resolved rather to meet death than to profane the holy supper of the Lord. 
He says, these hands you may crush as he's as he takes his arms and he, he holds them around these elements, he declares to these men standing across from him, these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours. You may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and to dishonor the table of my God. Now, I brought up Jonathan Edwards last week, willing to lose his pastorate of 20 years in order to maintain purity in their worship at the table of the Lord. And I even think of believers in many countries this very day where it's illegal to be a Christian, and yet they still continue gathering to worship Christ at his table. Historically, the church has seen corporate worship with other believers in the Lord's Supper as something that is worth suffering and even dying for. Viewing it as one of the most important means of grace that Christ has given to the church. Needless to say, that is radically different from the common understanding of what's taking place at the table in our day. And so if we are going to get back to the point where we can join with the church's historic perspective on worshiping Christ at the table, then we need to return to the scriptures and ask, what do the scriptures say about the significance of what is taking place at the table of the Lord? And uh, so this week and next week, we're going to be looking at that. We're going to be looking at the significance of the table. Now, there are many more things that I could say about the table, but I've chosen to say four things in regard to the significance of the table. Four truths from Scripture that I want to focus on, really four angles from the Bible that show us that what is taking place here at the table is more than just an, an empty or even an optional ceremony that believers can choose to partake in or choose not to partake in. Rather, this shows that it is a very significant and important aspect of our worship. Now, let me break this down for you. These first three, a table of remembrance, a table of thanksgiving, and a table of celebration, are really focusing on how God expects us as believers to use the table in our worship of him. And then the last one, the table of communion, is focusing on how God uses the table to strengthen our hearts in the worship of him. So the first three are focusing on how we are supposed to use the table to worship him. The fourth one is focusing on how God uses the table to strengthen us in our worship of him. Don't know how far we're going to get today, but we will get as far as we can. All right, so the first one we're going to look at, that we learn from Scripture that the table is to be used as a table of remembrance. A table of remembrance. We get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, where we find that Christ has instituted the table so that it would be used by believers to remember him. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Now, these verses make clear that when we worship Christ at his table, we are reminding ourselves of Jesus Christ and what he has done to save our souls. Really, the bread and the cup represent two parts or two aspects of Christ's saving work for the believer. The bread represents his body, as these verses say, reminding us that God the Son became a man in order to be the Savior of men. Hebrews 2.17 says, He was made like us in all things so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. See, in order to represent us, that's what a high priest does for those for whom he's ministering. He goes before God as a representative on their behalf. In order to represent us in the courtroom of God, Jesus Christ had to be made like us. He had to become flesh and blood. He had to take it to himself and become a real and full man in order to stand as a representative for men. And so he was made like us in all things in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest so that as our high priest and our representative before God the Father, he might make propitiation for our sins. It's a central work of the priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is to render satisfaction to the justice of God that was standing against the people because of their sin. Romans 8.3 goes further than that and tells us how he accomplished this. It says he accomplished this in a particular way, not only by becoming our offerer, not only by becoming the high priest who would offer the offering that would cover our sins, but also by becoming our sin offering himself. In Christ, God has done, this verse says, what the law weakened by the flesh could never do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. The Son of God became a perfect man so that he could be a holy, spotless, acceptable sacrifice for the sins of his people. You see what he does here. He accomplishes what the law weakened by the flesh could never do. What could never be accomplished by the law due to the weakness of our flesh? Well, salvation could never be accomplished by the law due to the weakness of our flesh. Atonement for sin could never be accomplished through the law because of the weakness of our flesh. We could never make ourselves right with God and earn a place of forgiveness before him, according to the law. And so here God sends his son to accomplish what you and I could never accomplish on our own. This is grace unimagined. This is grace unparalleled that the Father would call the Son to step down out of His glory to do what you and I were supposed to do but can no longer do for ourselves. The Father sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, like us, becoming a man like us to be a representative for us. And then sending him forth to the altar of justice to be an offering for sin on our behalf. In the words of Isaiah 53, you guys know this well, Isaiah 53, 6. The father, having caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon his beloved son, verse 10, it pleased Yahweh to crush him and to put him to grief on our behalf. What we're doing when we come and we take the bread of the table... 
We are lifting up that bread in remembrance of Christ becoming one with us by becoming a man like us. We are lifting up that truth, that reality that Jesus stepped down out of glory because of his grace and love and he became like us so that he might save us. He did what we could never do. He fulfilled the righteousness of the law both in its positive demands and in its negative demands. He did what God calls you and I to do to live a righteous life and then he satisfied the just demands of the law that stand against us because we fail to do what God's called us to do. He has fulfilled righteousness for us and when we hold up the bread, we are holding up that reality before all of our eyes and saying we are hoping in this reality and in this reality alone. We are remembering Jesus who came to be like us to save us. 1 Peter 2.24 puts it, Jesus came as a man to bear our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, all to this end, so that he might bring us to God. So when we take up the bread and we celebrate at the Lord's table, we are commemorating these realities and we are reminding ourselves that there is no other hope to be accepted before God other than what Jesus Christ has done for us in the flesh. And then with the cup, when we lift the bread and we take up the cup, the cup comes alongside the bread to seal this testimony to our hearts. That Jesus was not only the righteous one in our place, but also, in the words of Colossians 1.20, Bearing our sins in his body on the tree, Jesus has now established everlasting peace between us and our God. We now have peace that is unshakable through the blood of his cross. So we lift up the bread to say he was the holy sacrifice. We lift up the cup to say the sacrifice was given. And we now have peace with our God and Father. I can't, I, can't leave, I can't leave that. You guys are so quiet. We now, through the blood of Christ's cross, we now have peace with God. I don't know if, I don't know if you get that. I've had fresh reminders this last week of how much I need the blood of Christ, to be my surety of peace with God. When you taste your sin freshly, and the Lord lets you see how sinful you really are, the blood of Christ becomes far more precious to you. As Jesus said, he who is forgiven much, what? He loves much. This table is meant to be a table of remembrance. And you know why I think it doesn't often impact us the way it should? Because we don't remember what we were. You don't remember how bad you were. You don't remember what you are. I don't remember what I am. I, I, I just... Every lustful thought you've ever had. 
every lustful glance, every moment of dishonoring the Lord Jesus Christ, every, by, by doing what, what you want to do over what He wants you to do. Every, every time of drunkenness, every moment of anger, every, every moment of bitterness and backbiting and not loving your wife the way you should and not submitting and respecting and loving your husband the way you should, not honoring the Lord in your studies, not honoring the Lord in driving your car, cheating, stealing, robbing, defaming the glory of the Lord, taking His name in vain, taking His precious name upon your lips with emptiness. Every moment that you've ever done anything like that has been wiped clean through the blood of Christ. Yes, hallelujah for that. Oh, beloved, this table is a table of remembrance. And the only way that the table of remembrance is going to impact you is if you actually remember why you need to remember Christ. How often I need to be reminded of the basic truths of the gospel. The moment you get over, the moment our hearts get over the simple truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the moment we ought to be terrified for our souls. How often, I don't know, maybe you're like me. Maybe, I hope you're not. I hope you're far better than I am and more advanced in the Christian life, but... How often does your heart grow cold against the truths of the Lord Jesus? How often is your mind not fixed upon things above where Christ is seated? How often can what was said of Ephraim and and Judah be said of me? That my professed loyalty to the Lord is nothing more than a morning cloud and the dew that goes away early. No better than Peter. Beloved, Christ has appointed this table to be a tool of grace for weak and weary sinners like you and me. This is where He invites me to come to Him. The table is where He calls me and even commands me to come and worship Him. Despite what I am. To take hold of these symbols of grace and forgiveness and acceptance with God and to lift them high with the hands of faith and to use them as weapons against my own doubts and my own fears and my own insecurities that arise from my failings before Him. To come to the table and say, yes, I know what I am, but more importantly, I know who Christ is. I know what he has done. I I know what I've done and it grieves my soul. But I know what Christ did for me. And that's what I'm holding on to. I'm remembering Christ over against all my failings and sins. I'm holding him up. And I'm proclaiming him to be greater than me. The significance of the table. The table is meant to be a table of remembrance. Not just remembering the facts, but holding on to the reality and the truth and holding it up for your soul to cling to. That's one way the Lord wants us to celebrate at His table. 
It's to be a means of grace because it reminds us of the richness of God's saving grace revealed in Christ. And when we come to the table, God wants us to take hold of that grace and to use it to remind ourselves of the truth. So it's a table of remembrance. Secondly, it's also a table of thanksgiving. It is a table of remembrance, but it is also to be used as a table of thanksgiving. We get this from passages like Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 23. While they were eating, he took some bread. Speaking of Jesus, this is the institution of the supper, institution of the Lord's table. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Now we're specifically noticing verse 23, where it says that Jesus had given thanks for the cup. Verses like this are why, within the first century of the New Testament church, believers began to refer to worship at the table as the celebration of the Eucharist. You ever heard that phrase, the Eucharist, or the table referred to as the Eucharist? More specifically, they're normally referring to the bread with that phrase. But Eucharist is just the English rendering of the Greek word that is used here in this verse for giving thanks. When Jesus instituted the table for us, he established it as a place where believers would come to express thankfulness to God for salvation in Christ. Stacy, what's the next slide? Okay. Thank you. That's not the one I want yet. This is where everything fell apart this morning, and I had, to, I had to rework it. Jesus established a table to be a place of thanksgiving for his people. And recognizing that reality is what drove early believers within the first century to call the table the celebration of the Eucharist, the celebration of thanksgiving. Believers in our day, at least I've noticed in the churches where I've, churches I've been a part of, believers have a tendency to come to the Lord's table with deep somberness. You ever notice that? Like kind of a lowliness that, that's, that's gloomy. There's this, there's this shadow that seems to come over people when they come to the table, and it's not necessarily anything we would describe as a giving of thanks. It's more of a mournful episode in the life of the church where if you peered in as a stranger and you looked at the people partaking in the table, you would wonder, are they rejoicing or are they mourning? Now, I think there's a reason for that, and I don't think that that's necessarily wrong for us to be mournful at the table to a degree. Because what we're doing in that morning state, if you are truly like me and you come to the table and you find, yourself, you find it hard to rejoice, what you're doing at that table is you're being reminded of how fallen you are. Just how, 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 how far short you have come from the glory of God, even as a believer. So, Lord, I'm not worthy even to take up this table. How can I rejoice in taking of the table? 
Well, I think we need to hear the Lord saying, I know you're not worthy of it. You weren't worthy of it whenever I gave it to you. Now go take at the table and rejoice. We need, to, we need to adopt that kind of mentality. But I think that though sometimes it can be gloomy, if we are taking our cues from Christ, then we ought to come to the table with a deep sense of thanksgiving. I want you to think about the scene of Christ when he instituted this table. Here we find Jesus giving thanks for these elements that he's handing to the disciples. But I want you to remember, in light of the situation, if anyone had the right to approach this table with a sense of somberness, with a dark and gloomy overtone, it would have been Christ. Here Christ is the night of his betrayal, 12 hours maybe, before he's hanging on a cross, facing the horrors of the wrath of God unimagined. Not merely the rejection of the Jews, not merely the brutal treatment at the hand of the Romans, but the unimaginable anguish of knowing that he is about to face the full fury of the judgment of God against sin. And not just for some nameless, faith, faceless group either, but for every one of the sinners he came to save, including these very sinners who were gathered with him around the table. Jesus was about to hang on the cross for their sin. The very ones that he's handing the bread to, those to whom he is commanding that they take the cup and drink. For them, he was about to suffer the full weight of holy wrath that their sins deserved and the complete measure of condemnation that God's law would pour out upon them. And yet, knowing all of this, what do we find Jesus doing here at this moment? We don't find him mourning. And this is really important for you to understand. We don't find him scolding his disciples either. He had already told them that you're all going to abandon me. And yet, we don't find him scolding his disciples. We find Jesus rejoicing and giving thanks over this symbol of union and peace and reconciliation and worship of God. With joy, we find him handing these sinners his cup of blessing. And with thanksgiving, taking it to his lips, taking to his lips their cup of God's wrath. Now, I could run long on this, but brothers and sisters, we need to get this. Jesus giving thanks over the celebration of the Lord's table tells us something that ought to ignite our own thankfulness every time we come to celebrate it. Jesus did not begrudgingly go to the cross for sinners like us. The father didn't drag his son kicking and screaming to Golgotha. Jesus went willingly, and what I want to point out is he went joyfully. He went giving thanks, knowing that the glory of what he was about to accomplish for his father and for the good of his people far outweighed the suffering that he was about to endure. Verse 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, right? Yes, the cross was hard. Yes, drinking the wrath of God was miserable. Yes, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet all the while he's looking forward to the good work that he's accomplishing for sinners like us. And he's thankful for it. And so when we gather at his table, when we seek to join in fellowship and worship with Christ around his table, if we would honor him there, we must come with that same heart. We must come with the same zeal, the same excitement, the same strength of spirit. We must come also giving thanks with him for this fellowship that we have with our God at his table. Being thankful for a Savior who so lovingly and so willingly, so graciously suffered the agonies of hell in our place. So I love about Psalm 116, verse 13. The psalmist says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 17 says, To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's what we're seeking to do when we come to the table. Not offering a sacrifice, but offering the symbols of the final sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Lifting up the cup of salvation, calling upon the name of the Lord, and offering our sacrifice of thanksgiving by remembering the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the table is to be a place where we come to remember Christ. The table is to be a place where we come to give thanks for the salvation that is ours in Christ. And then thirdly, the table is designed by the Lord to be a table of celebration for those who are holding fast to Christ. I get this from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. And uh, the connection may be a little more difficult to see at first, but let me try to show to you where I make this connection. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, it describes the Lord's table as the Lord's Supper. I want to highlight that phrase for just a minute. In Old Testament Israel, among other feasts, there were at least three annual feasts during which all of Israel was required by God to gather together to appear before him. Exodus 23, 15, one of these was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This followed the celebration of the Passover. And just as a side note, if you look at Exodus 12, 14, it describes the meal of the Passover as a memorial. The meal of the Passover was a feast to celebrate before the Lord and a permanent ordinance. Very familiar language. And we're talking about the Lord's table and how to celebrate the Lord's table. But, but one of those feasts was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Exodus 23, 15. And then Exodus 23, 16, you also had the Feast of the Harvest of Firstfruits, otherwise known as Pentecost. And then the Feast of Ingathering, which came at the end of the harvest. Now, Exodus 23, verse 14, so we've looked at 23, 15, and 16. 23, 14 tells us why God established these feasts to be, uh, to be observed in Israel. He established these feasts to be a celebration 
before him, an opportunity for his people to come and celebrate before the Lord. Now, just like everything else God instituted in worship under the Old Covenant, even these feasts pointed forward to the blessings that God would provide for his people in the Messiah. They were foreshadows. They were pictures of what God was going to bring to pass eventually in the coming of the promised seed, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the New Testament, we find that all of these celebration feasts find their fulfillment in Jesus. For example, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, it declares that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, verse 8, what are we to do in response to that? We are to celebrate the feast. Exactly what the language that's used in Exodus 23, 15. We're to celebrate this feast unto the Lord. Not with malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Christians are said to be celebrating the fulfillment of the Feast of Firstfruits because now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Now you've got to keep the picture of the, the, the ingathering, the Feast of Firstfruits in mind. What was its purpose? Well, it was the first fruits of the harvest, and you bring them unto the Lord in worship and thankfulness because that represented the full crop that you were about to go harvest in total. So it's, it's a measure of the blessing that God has given you that you're now bringing unto the Lord and worshiping Him for being so beneficent towards you. And it's hopeful. It's looking forward. It's a first fruits that is signaling the crop and the harvest that's to come. And so Christ, the fulfillment of that feast of first fruits, is the first fruits of the ones who have been raised from the dead. Signaling to us that all who belong to Christ and all who hope in Christ have this guarantee in Christ as the first fruits, that what happened to Christ will also happen to us. And then you find the fulfillment of the feast of ingathering. You guys still with me? Yeah? It's kind of. Then you have the fulfillment of the feast of ingathering, which began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost and which will reach its consummation at the end of the age. What Matthew 13.30 calls the day of harvest. When all the sons and daughters of the kingdom are gathered by Christ's angels and brought into his barn. That is the fulfillment of the feast of ingathering. What Revelation 19.19 19 calls on that day the celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? Now, I point to all of those simply to say that in the New Covenant, all of these feasts that were instituted in the worship of Israel under the Old Covenant have found their fulfillment in Christ. Now, if the substance of what those Old Testament feasts of celebration, if, if the substance of those Old Testament feasts have found their fulfillment in Christ, under the New Covenant, we find a new celebration feast that has been appointed for God's people. Does anyone want to guess what it is? Just throw it out there. The Lord's Supper. That's right. What 1 Corinthians 11.20 calls the Lord's Supper, I think it would be better to translate that word supper as feast. It's translated that way in other places in the New Testament. 
And I think what we are celebrating when we come to the Lord's table is the Lord's feast. That the table of the Lord is a feast. It is a banquet. And it is designed by God to be a feast of celebration for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Now, what are we celebrating when we come to the table of the Lord? Well, we come celebrating Christ, our Passover lamb, and all that that entails. What was the Passover lamb for Israel? It was the commemoration. It was the celebration of God making provision for his people so that his wrath would pass over them. Is that not what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb? We have the fulfillment of what was pictured under the old covenant. We have the fullness and the reality, the realization of how God was going to provide for his wrath to pass over his people. And it's put on full display for us in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to the table celebrating Christ as our Passover lamb. We are celebrating the feast with sincerity and ingenuineness. We are celebrating the full redemption that he has procured for us. Not a temporary redemption from slavery in Egypt, but an eternal redemption that includes slavery from sin. We come to the table as those who have been set free from their sin and have now been made slaves to God. We come rejoicing in that reality, saying, Lord, I know what you've delivered me from, and you've done it through the Lord Jesus Christ, and now I come here to celebrate, to lift high these symbols in celebration of this great work of salvation you've begun to accomplish in my heart. If we are those who have been set free from our bondage and sin and we have been brought to experience the glory and the cleansing power of God's grace in Christ, then we must come to this table and appear before him celebrating the work that he's done. If we are those whom the Holy Spirit has begun to gather in to Christ, then we better come to this table celebrating. If you are one whom the Holy Spirit has brought up out of your deadness and sin and has made you alive together with Christ, then you better come here celebrating because that's a sign that you are one who is going to be gathered in at the end of the ages. You are the crop that Jesus is gathering into his barn. And you better come here celebrating because that is a gift of grace that you don't deserve and you didn't do anything to earn, but God gave freely out of his abundant love for you. If we are those who have been raised up out of sin and called into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits, then we must come to this table and celebrate Christ as the first fruits of what is to come even for us. Celebrating the work of the Spirit, gathering us to Christ now and waiting for that final day of ingathering that Christ will bring about in his own time. If celebration is what the Lord called for under the feast of the Old Covenant, that was made up of nothing but shadows and types of the fulfillment that was to come? 
If God required celebration at those feasts under the Old Covenant, does he not much more require celebration from us as we partake in the feast of the New Covenant? I think he does. Now, all of this that we've looked at is how we use the Lord's table to worship Christ. We use it in remembrance of Christ. We use it to give thanks to God for Christ. We use it to celebrate Christ. But the only way that we are going to be empowered to use the table in these ways is if God is first using the table to strengthen us in the grace of Christ. This leads to the fourth point, which we're not going to get to today. That the table is a table of communion with the Lord Jesus. I have sharing in the blood of Christ and sharing in the body of Christ there underlined. And uh, that word in Greek, you could translate that with the word communion, with fellowship, partaking in, or as it is here, sharing. But when believers partake in the cup and when they partake in the bread, according to this verse, in some way they are fellowshipping in and communing in the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, this is describing worship at the table as more than a ceremony. That there is an active communion with Christ that is taking place when the believer approaches the Lord at the table. Now, what exactly is that participation? What is that sharing? What is that fellowship? What is that communion in the body and blood of Christ here at the table? We will get to that next week. And um, pray for me this week that I'd be able to develop that clearly. That it'd be a blessing to you and we would have an understanding of how the Lord's table is used by God to be a means of grace for us. Let's pray together. Father, I... know so many of my weaknesses, Lord, and even acknowledging that, I don't know them the way, I guess I, I only know them in part. And, uh, Lord, I thank you that what you have given us in Christ, what you have given us in your Son, was not given in ignorance of what we truly are. But you gave it in full recognition and full understanding of what we are, that while we were yet your enemies, you sent your son to die for the ungodly. Lord, as we prepare ourselves even now to celebrate the table, the first of uh, October, God, I pray that these truths would be in mind and that they would be shaping our hearts and our, shaping our minds so that we would approach your table in a more worthy manner the next time we celebrate it together as a body. Please fill us with your spirit, Lord. Let your truth govern and guide us. Let it rule our hearts. And Father, may we be those who rejoice in you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this great Redeemer that you've provided for us. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing our closing hymn? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? 
I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. May the Lord fill you with grace and peace and strength and encouragement to do that this week, lifting up Christ and calling upon his name in hope. May you go in the peace of the Lord Jesus. Amen.